Today's episode is brought to you by the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Every entrepreneur knows that feeling of exhaustion when you realize there's only so much of you to go around. Look, we all have a limited amount of time and energy. If you're a creative educator or shop wondering how you can increase your income without increasing your workload, check out academyforvirtualteaching.com to see how live, virtual, and online workshops can increase your income without increasing your workload. Academyforvirtualteaching.com is the place to find a supportive community helping each other to become more proficient, profitable, and professional virtual teachers. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 204 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about quilting as creative expression with my guest, Zach Foster. Raised in rural North Carolina and now living in Brooklyn, New York, Zach is a self-taught artist whose work draws on Southern textile traditions while incorporating found fabrics and natural dyes with an eye for sustainability. He practices an approach to design that is intuitive and improvisational. And he's drawn to preserving the stories of quilts and specializes in memory quilts and burial quilts. His work has been featured in various magazines, websites, and galleries. And you can check him out at ZachFoster.com. Zach Foster, welcome. Hi, good morning, Abby. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. So I'm very excited to talk with you. You've been in the press recently with the Met Gala, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I'd love to walk back a little bit and talk about kind of how you became an artist and got interested in making quilts. So I know you live in Brooklyn now, but you grew up in the South, and you have a little bit of a Southern accent um, that I can hear. And so what um, what was your childhood like? What were you interested in when you were younger? Oh, so thanks for starting there, Abby. I I really like thinking about the roots of things. And for me, when I think of little four-year-old creative Zach, um, I remember my mom had these giant envelopes. I mean, we're talking about, they were probably like five feet wide, big enough for me as a child to get into if I wanted. And she would collect every doodle, every drawing, every collage, every glued macaroni to a piece of paper went in that envelope and so I think in my family from an early early age I had the sense that what I made was valuable and I've carried that with me for the last you know five decades I suppose of making that I feel that um what I make and what I bring into this world can have some value and can have some power that's fantastic. I love that your mom did that. And um, was she into sewing? Did she have a sewing machine? Or what was your exposure to sewing or quilting? Mm. So my mom did have a sewing machine, but she didn't use, I don't remember her using it. Um, my earliest sewing memory was of her mom going over to visit my grandma. And she had spread out on her table. I mean, this would have been one of my earliest memories. I was probably four or five years old. Spread out on her table was uh, dress patterns, you know, the brown onion skin pattern pieces. And I just remember thinking, one, just being enamored with the, with the material itself of that paper. And two, realizing, I was old enough to realize that you don't have to buy your stuff from the store. You can make your stuff. And that's what my grandma did, which felt very cool. And yeah. did, did you get a chance to do any sewing yourself? Oh, you know, I did a little bit here and there growing up. I remember in the third grade, we had a special little house on the prairie day. And, the, you know, one of the, the activities uh, was to sew a little four square patch. So that was technically my very first quilt. <laughs> right. I made. Yeah. Um, was I doing much sewing? No, not really. Not I much. mean, I just a lot of drawing, a lot of painting, a lot of doodling, and a lot of playing out in the woods. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. I grew up in the woods, and so that was also a place of inspiration, collecting sticks and building little forts and collecting berries and, you know, doing the things kids do in the woods. Yeah, totally. And so when you went to college, what um, were you studying to do afterward? I remember when I was a senior in high school and I had finally figured out what I was going to do with my life. I wanted to go to art school. And I remember telling my parents that. And no shade on my parents, because I've already told you, they were supportive from the beginning. But I could tell in their response that there was a question about job security and future security. And whatever that vibe was that I was picking up on also resonated with my own personal concerns. So I switched from art school to Spanish. And I thought that I would use Spanish to become a missionary at some point in time. Throughout my college years, I had a bit of a change of heart, no longer all that interested in going out and, and convincing people they should believe this way or that way. And so then I used that Spanish to become a Spanish teacher. And that's what I did for 18 years. But I recently just quit. I mean, by recent, I mean in the last month, <laughs> quit my job of teaching in the public schools. And now I'm full-time artist, full-time quilter, and full-time creative community builder. Wow, that's amazing. And we'll get there. Um, and how did you learn to speak Spanish? Was that something that your was in your family? Or was that something that you learned in school? You know, shout out to the power of a good teacher. I had Senora Blythe was her name. Three out of four years of my high school experience, she taught me Spanish, even though there were many teachers in that department. I lucked up with her. And she was just such an inspiring figure for me. She loved what she did. She brought joy every day to what she was, you know, bringing to the classroom. But I was like, that was like a pretty good life. Mm -hmm. And so when I decided to become a Spanish teacher, I had that model. And I thought, okay, let's try that out. Yeah, that's so interesting, the power of a single teacher. I think a lot of us have a story um, like that. And so you you taught um, in the public schools um, and up until recently. And what kind of school were you teaching in? Um, it was high school, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, I taught down in North Carolina for about five years. And then me and my partner moved up here to Brooklyn. And so I taught in North Carolina in two schools and in Brooklyn, Two more schools, so four total, all high schools, all public high schools. And that I've been a public middle school teacher um, for four years. So I know that it is a pretty taxing job. You're on your feet all day and you're also talking all day. And if you mm -hmm. have an introverted um, strain in your personality, you know, that's taxing too, because it's all about people talking to people and interacting with people all the time. First of all, God bless you for being a middle school teacher. That's what my mom was until she retired. And and dealing with those kids at that particular phase of life, you got to have all the skills, right? <laughs> when, you, when you're like 15 to 18, you've kind of mellowed out a little bit. But oh, those middle school years were. That's rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but to, to your point about energy and, and what it takes to teach, it takes a tremendous amount of teaching, uh, a tremendous amount of energy and I got to a place where I was feeling that my energy wasn't, I was not wisely using the energy I had at my disposal, that it was taking too much energy just to keep my head above water at school. And by that, I mean, like, you know, just, just to get the kids to turn in their worksheet. That took energy, right? Like, keep the kids from, like, copying answers. That took energy. I'm like, why am I spending my energy this way? This didn't feel like I was putting it to, to wise use. And so that was the big reason why I made the switch. And I think layered on top of that is when you do have that introverted strain, as it sounds like you do, and I definitely do. I do. It's, it can be, yeah, it can be doubly tough because just because we're, we don't draw our energy from a myriad of relationships doesn't mean relationships aren't important to us. And so kind of a double-edged sword was for me that my relationships with my students were so important, but I didn't feel like I could provide what they needed ultimately, right? That's because I was spread way too thin. So I am more than happy now here in this uh, slightly smaller sized world in some ways of being this textile artist now that allows me to bring my full energy to bear in a way that feels congruent with who I know myself to be and in a way that seems thoughtful and wise and ultimately helpful. 
And all of that time that you were teaching, um, you were also building this quilting practice. And so I wondered for those folks listening who do have a full-time job or a part-time job or are a full-time caregiver and, you know, for family or, or whatever it might be, what was your kind of rhythm of work during that time? Because clearly you were quite productive and made a lot of work and a lot of really creative work. So you must have been able to fit it in. Yeah. Oh, I just got to say, I'm so thankful to be on this end of the journey. <laughs> I've, I've been the last 10 years transitioning in one way or another to full-time artist. And for a long time, I was, I would say at least for the last three years, it felt like I was working two jobs at once, two full-time jobs at once. Right. And, um, that, that in and of itself was exhausting, but I knew what my end goal was. And so that's what drove me on. But I, I love working with quilts. I love working with textiles and I love connecting with people around textiles. So even though I was tired from a day of teaching, I didn't mind coming home and, and sewing, even if it was just like a half hour, an hour. Like that's what brought me joy. So I didn't mind doing it, um, even though it was a large time commitment. I, over the course of the 10 years leading up to leaving teaching and starting a full-time job, I would say that I started with, well, I mean, what started me quilting was making baby quilts for my friends because they were starting to have their first kids, you know, and I wanted to have a nice gift to give to them. Um, and then from there, I, I opened up an Etsy shop and had a few things. That was my main portal, I would say, for maybe the first five years of my quilting career. And then a friend of mine who is a great entrepreneur, runs a, her own spice business online, says, Zach, maybe you want to get your own website. I said, well, I'm not there yet. I just... I'm not big enough, you know? And she says, well, there will come a time when you may not want to be with Etsy anymore. You don't want to be dependent on another platform and you'll want to have your own space carved out. And so under her guidance, I set up my own website, ZachFoster.com. That's Z-A-K, by the way. You can ask my mom why there's no C in there. I don't know. <laughs> and, and so I set up my own website and now I do more business through the website than I do through Etsy. I leave it open because I do find that it is some good exposure for me, but most of my business is now coming through my own website and through Instagram. So I set up my own website at the same time that I did a Kickstarter. This would have been year six, maybe, if, if we're trying to keep a timeline here. I started, I did a Kickstarter to raise funds to get a long arm quilting machine. Okay. And that was tremendously successful. Um, I needed 5,000 for the machine and I ended up getting 12,000. And I remain thankful to this day to everybody who chipped in because not only was it able to help me get this machine, but it also provided the funds to start the website and get some photography done and get some, some things I needed in place, you know, as a more professional, a part-time professional quilter. Um, that also, I think, put me on people's radar as a, well, we'll say an emergent quilt professional. And from there, it was a lot of Instagram building, you know, a lot of building community on Instagram. And I made a shift with my thinking about Instagram, I would say probably about the beginning of the pandemic. Because leading up to the pandemic, I kind of had a fraught, almost a complex relationship with social media in the sense that I know that if I'm honest, and I'm going to be honest, there, there are some moments where I look at what other people are doing on Facebook, on Facebook or Instagram or wherever, and I start comparing my own work to theirs. And I start feeling a little bit second rate, you know, and I never wanted to be the, the catalyst of that feeling for somebody else. And so that therein lies the fraughtness, you know, I, I, I didn't want to be the person that made them look down their own work or question their own work. But then I had a shift and this is what brought me some peace of mind ever since. And this is kind of the filter that I operate. And I think those, those of you who follow me on Instagram will, will recognize this when I say it. But at the beginning of the pandemic, I decided to almost put my work in, um, in the background and put my person in the foreground, who I was as, as a whole person. We'll put a whole in air quotes. I'm still not telling y'all all the dirty details, but um, I put person first and, and quilt second. And what that looks like is I showed a lot more process and I showed a lot more 
vulnerability and, and foibles. And it, you, some folks may be familiar with my little morning memo stories that I do, where I just, you know, it's like within the first hour of waking up, I've had my coffee, but that's about the extent of my preparation. And I just turn on the camera and I talk to you for a minute, you know, wishing you good morning, telling you what I'll be working on for the day, and maybe a little word of encouragement or something. But the whole idea for me using social media now is a channel to motivate others to push their own creative boundaries and using that filter has, or that, I don't want to say filter, using that um, point on the horizon to kind of orient myself towards has been really helpful as far as my relationship with social media has been. Yeah. And it's almost like your teacher hat, right? Because when you're a teacher, that is your goal, you know, um, is to motivate others and, help them to fulfill whatever it is their potential is, you know? And so, I mean, that what, no matter what you're teaching, that's what the, the <laughs> overarching goal is, you know? So, um, so maybe right. seeing Instagram as that versus a way to show off or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. You know, I've, I've had a couple, I've had a few moments in the last month, the last teacher where I'm like, <laughs> Zach, you can take the teacher out the classroom, but, you know, like here I am still doing a lot of the things. And I, and I remain thankful for those 18 years in the classroom because they taught me so much. Yeah. Tell you know? us a little they bit about to, what did you, what did you learn or what carries over? Yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think uh, I, I gained a skill for making things engaging and, and relevant. I mean, in the classroom, I had to be able to sh demonstrate clearly to my students why we're doing this thing we're doing, why it's worth the learning and worth the energy. I think that skill set carries over. I think working in the classroom with hundreds of students, developing relationships with hundreds of students, and then if you tally those over the years, thousands of students, I got to be a pretty good study, quick study of personality. You know, like uh, I can connect with a lot of different kinds of people because I've worked with and had relationships with so many different kinds of people. And um, that's something that, education being a teacher has brought me um i also think it's given me a sense of clarity and organization you know i feel like i can i can approach my day in a fairly organized fashion and i remember when i first started teaching that i was not the virgo that i am today i, I feel like teaching forced me to become uh much more clear in my in my processes much more organized much more scheduled and so um teaching made me uh, the clearer sighted person that I am today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It requires a lot of dis self-discipline and, um, and that's, that's definitely helpful. And I wanted to go back to the Kickstarter. I just had a few other questions about it. So um, what were the rewards that you offered to your Kickstarter donors? Oh. Well, let's see if I can remember. Let's go back in history. You know, I will, I will say that, so I recently started this creative community. I know we're getting to that, but it was interesting as a point of contrast. So I'll talk about Quilty Nook at the same time I'm talking about Kickstarter, because I do think they're interesting to see side by side. With Kickstarter, I gave away a lot of merchandise, a lot of stuff, because I just wasn't as well known at that point in time. And I felt like, rightly or wrongly, folks needed to be enticed with shiny objects to to want to support me, you know? And so I remember giving away things like tote bags that I had done some patchwork on, pens that had a piece of my patchwork kind of printed on them. Um, I, for, for every donor, no matter what the level, they got a strip of fabric with their name written on it that I tied around the leg of the long arm. And I can, I'm looking at that right now. I can remember all of them. Um, some people got quilts. I mean, that was the, the high dollar donors, you know, and there were postcards. People got postcards and that's something I'm still making today because it's just such a nice, it's a nice gift. I like, I like being able to put my quilts on postcards, which are on paper, recycled content, biodegradable, and I can put those out in the world too. Um, so that's what I did a lot of merchandise with Kickstarter. Now with starting the Quilty Nook, which initially was on Patreon, but it was so interesting for me to reflect on how much has changed in the last five years for me, because I didn't feel the same need or compulsion to offer merchandise to people. I didn't sense that that's what people really wanted ultimately. 
you know, people have enough tote bags and things like that. Uh, what I felt like I could tap into was time with me. You know, that um, people have gotten to know me in a sense on Instagram and, and, and various talks that I've given and chats and things. And so I think that I have a unique perspective on quilting and on life that people take to. And so I honestly just started kind of marketing myself, marketing my time, which I have an abundance that doesn't cost me anything. Um, and that's been really, really warmly received. And so with the Quilty Nook, you can get in different ways. You know, I would say that the general access account, which is like seven bucks a month, get you into the whole community, meaning you get to post and chat and share. You get access to all the videos and tutorials and resources, all of that. And then for the next level up, you can join creative cohorts, which brings you into kind of a inner circle of sorts. You know, creative cohorts are small groups of folks, eight max plus me, so I guess nine, nine max. We meet once a month on Zoom, on Google Meet. And we talk about our creative projects, our creative processes. And we talk about questions we have and doubts we have and and we show off and celebrate one another's work. And that has been that's been going on now for I think we're in month five of, of these cohort meetings. And a really tight knit bond is beginning to develop because it's not just the once a month. There's also they have their own kind of private chat area and so they're talking every day in the private chat and they're really getting connected and there was a time when one of our members was sick recently and people were genuinely concerned and and it just it's moments like that that made me feel that this is a positive way to be spending my energy uh into the world because not only am are we engaging in conversation about the creative process but we're also connecting and bonding to one another which We've always needed, but especially in the last 20 months or so. I want to take a minute now to hear from our sponsor, Lyric Kennard of the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Hi, I'm Lyric Montgomery Kennard, and I'm here today with the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And what is the Academy for Virtual Teaching? It is the most amazing, wonderful, supportive community of teachers. Right now, mostly quilters, but we are inviting anybody who teaches hands-on workshops and courses. And we all teach virtually. So we concentrate on becoming more proficient with technical skills and with virtual teaching equipment, becoming more professional with our business practices. And, you know, we talk straight up. We want to make more money without adding a lot of work and time into our business practices. And what have you found to be some of the main advantages of teaching virtually? Oh, my goodness, there are so many. It's been such a wonderful thing, this silver lining to the past um, horrid year of COVID lockdown, where we can't reach students from anywhere we are in the globe. And we come right into their workrooms. The students don't have to pack up any crazy amount of supplies. The quilters don't have to pack up a whole machine and create it in their car or wherever they're going. If we're teaching something that involves fabric and they change their mind about what they want to use, they just run over to the next room or right where they are and get the fabric they really want. It is amazing and wonderful and fun to be able to interact and to reach our students this way. Great. And so this is basically like a membership community where you're going to be with all sorts of other folks who are also embarking onto this virtual teaching journey together so you can support each other and learn from one another. That's correct. We have a lot of really interesting activities that go on. Um, Teachers can schedule practice sessions via Zoom so that you can set up new tech equipment and practice using it and get feedback from other people who are already familiar with what you do. We have monthly guest seminars where we bring in experts in virtual teaching who talk about things like um, the tech that they use. They talk about 
where to reach their students and how to reach them. We talk about different apps that are useful in a virtual teaching practice. We have a list of equipment recommendations. We have monthly roundtables that are just open discussions where we can talk about anything we need. If you have a new workshop that you are developing, you can post your photos or your description and get feedback and make it better so that it reaches more students. And we just support each other. You can find us at academyforvirtualteaching.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lyric. Thank you so much to the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And now back to my conversation with Zach. It's both, it sounds like it's both time with you, but it's also community, a way to create community. And those are the two values that you're, um, you're buying into when, I mean, you're also getting tutorials and, you know, actual instructional information, but those two pieces seem like the, I guess, intangibles that are really valuable to the community members. 100%. 100%. Yeah, it's creativity, it's the creative process, and it's the community. And that's why I ended up making the switch from Patreon to what I'm using now, the platform Mighty Network. Yeah, let's um, let's talk on. for a second about what Patreon is and its model, yeah. just because mm-hmm. there may be listeners who, who are familiar, but maybe some who are not 100% clear on how that works, and then the difference mm-hmm. with Mighty Networks. Yeah, happy to. Uh, so Patreon is a platform that's been around now for, I believe, five years. I think they started about 2017. And what Patreon is, is a platform that allows artists of various kinds. You'll see podcasters on there. You'll see visual artists, actors, musicians, all kinds of folks are on there. And you come up with kind of tiered uh, membership. And at different tiers, members can get various benefits. And it's a way for people to financially support you and the work that you do in exchange for these benefits. You know? um, one of the things that Patreon has going for it is brand name recognition. A lot of folks now do know Patreon. And I know that um, some of the people support me on Patreon just because they were already supporting other creators on the platform. And it was just easy to throw another five bucks my way, which I really appreciated. Now, the limitation, though, came to be with, like you just astutely pointed out, two threads were the creative process and community. Well, Patreon for me was only meeting half of those goals. It was only meeting the creative process part. And by that, I mean, it's essentially set up as a one directional kind of a communication, right? Like it allows me, the creator, to post and to send out tutorials and to send out email blasts and to send out videos or whatever but it's harder to really get patrons, members, talking to each other. It's all just me to the patron and the patron back to me. Um, and what I began to, I began to see those limitations in the cohorts, especially because with our cohorts, we, you know, somebody tries a new technique one month and almost invariably the next month, somebody else in the cohort will come back and they've spun off of that and they've tried something off of that, you know, and I'm like, wait a second. It's not just that. Get off your high horse here. It's not just you inspiring people. We are inspiring one another. So how can we open up those doors a little bit so that we can really do just massive cross-pollination here, right? That's, that's the way I view it. And so there was no way that was ever going to happen at Patreon. It was just too cramped for what I wanted to do. It's a perfect fit for a lot of folks, but it just wasn't working for the community building aspect. And so a friend of mine, Felicia Simple, who organizes the Soulcraft Festival down in Melbourne, uh, wrote me and she's like, Zach, I see what you're trying to do on Patreon. It ain't working. I know she didn't say that because she's too nice. But she, she's like, you might want to consider Mighty Networks. I'm using it for the Soulcraft Festival this year. And it is a joy to see what is happening. And it's true. So that was kind of uh, the last kind of push I needed to think about how to migrate an entire audience of 300 people over to a brand new platform. And that's been a transition the last week or so, but uh, it's been one that's been well worth it. 
Yeah, so interesting. And did you consider choosing a Facebook group rather than Mighty Networks? Um, no, just because I'm really not on Facebook. Okay. I automatically will send my Instagram post to Facebook, but it's just it's just not my platform. And okay. I made a decision at one point in time not to spread myself too thin. And right. I can even tell now with, with quilting becoming as vibrant as it is, that's really where my time is now. Like with the time, the things I used to do on Instagram, or I should say the time and energy I used to spend on Instagram, I'm now spending over on the quilty nuts. And to me, that feels so much more satisfying because it feels like, like I'm uh, a member of a village or a member of a tribe or something. You know, like it just like I look around, and I know everybody to one degree or, or another. And so that that size community just just suits me. I think it suits. Me. A lot of folks. I think that's what draws people. Yes, I think so too. That sense of belonging is really powerful. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about your email newsletter. I subscribe and it's just a joy um, in a lot of ways. It really stands out to me. I'm a connoisseur of email newsletters and yours really stands out to me for a lot of reasons. Um, one is that you send it regularly, two, which many people <laughs> don't do. Um, two is that, um, stylistically, it's beautifully, you know, designed. It's very thoughtfully designed and really reflects your kind of color palette from your quilts, I feel like, and your aesthetic. <laughs> um, and I loved, I believe I got like a welcome video when I first joined. I, I would love for you to talk about that and just kind of the, um, maybe your strategy in email marketing and, and how that's been going. Okay. Yeah, so let's talk about newsletters. I would say that first and foremost, I would recommend there's a platform out there called Creative Live, which has a lot of courses for creative individuals who are interested in starting their own business. And I took a really great course on just kind of marketing yourself. Newsletters was a large part of that with I believe her name was Megan Almond. Yeah. And, and Tara Gentili. I took two separate courses. Both of them I can highly recommend to any creative out there that is thinking about starting their own business. And with newsletters, I, I when I started, I committed that it would be a monthly newsletter. You know, there was no like dabbling. You're like, Zach, this is your new job now. Um, and so it comes out on the first of every month, mostly. <laughs> Sometimes it might be the second or third, but it really does come out close to the opening of the month. And I've even scheduled my quilty nook activities and my creative co cohort activities so that I have the last week of each month free in order to be able to work on the newsletter. So I've prioritized my, my monthly calendar that way. Um, similar to what I was saying about my, my vision for how I interact with social media, I crafted this newsletter in a way that hopefully people get inspiration from it and new ideas from it. It's not just me showcasing my work. And so that's the main reason I didn't call it Zach Foster's newsletter. I call it motivation for the maker. Uh, Cause I believe that all of us need motivation, myself included from time to time. We need to see the good ideas that are happening out there. We need to see the struggles. We need to see the failed attempts. We need to see all of it, you know? And so in this newsletter, I highlight what I'm working on. I highlight what I see other people around me working on. There's a section there for community projects. So folks that are members of nonprofit organizations or just a small quilt guild or whatever that are looking for volunteers for things can post so people can find interesting ways to get engaged there. Um, what else? Is, I mean, all kinds of stuff. I would say that I started with MailChimp, if we want to be business for a second. Yeah, I started yeah. with MailChimp. I know, listen, some people love MailChimp. It seems to be what almost everybody uses. I found it had a few too many bells and whistles. Like it just was never intuitive for me. Um, and I love technology and I love having options, but it was just too much. And I could never find the thing I was looking for. So I started shopping around. My next newsletter platform was Flowdesk. And I'm not going to sit here and trash Flowdesk, but I will say that they came to me with some really nasty accusations and zero chance to defend myself. And they just shut me down. Wow. And that just left me very cold. What was, I knew, what was it? Was it a copyright issue or I don't know? They, well, that's the thing. They didn't even really say I, one day I got an automated email saying you need to unsubscribe these X thousands of subscribers 
without giving me a reason. And wow. so I just wrote back saying simply, I'm not going right. to unsubscribe people with that. You telling me why? Like my name wasn't even in the email. That's how automated it was. Wow. And they wrote back saying, we don't offer that kind of customer support. If this is, you know, if this isn't acceptable to you, we're happy to cancel your account and refund your money. And that was it. That's so interesting. It so sounds just- like it was almost a mistake. Like, you know, like it was an automated thing and it went out to the wrong person. I mean, to me, that's what it sounds like. But okay. It so, could have been, but you know, yeah. but, no, but I would like to say that I reached out to their customer service yeah. and they wouldn't talk to me either. They wrote so back odd. saying, you need to continue talking with this particular oh, department. I'm sorry. And so it felt, yeah, it felt concerted and it left me I mean, honestly, it left me panicky because it. Sure. You know, if, you, if you built a newsletter list, you know how sure. valuable that is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew I hadn't like bought subscribers or anything. You know, like I exactly. knew all of them were legitimate signups. And so that just left me cold. So if you're using Flowdesk and you're happy, I'm great for you. But if you're if you're not and you're considering platforms, what I finally settled on and what I love, love, love is MailerLite. Yeah, people I, love it. Okay. MailerLite is great. It has tons of options, but not too many. It has live support. I can't tell you how many little times I'm like, how do I do this little thing? And there's a little chat feature and someone will respond within minutes. That's you know, like great. It's none of this like emailing and waiting a day to get back. Like it's just wonderful customer service, wonderful interface, lots of customizable things you can do. Um, and it's a, an affordable price. It's like, I think maybe 30 bucks a month or something. So um, I'm very, very happy with MailerLite. That's great. Um, so that's very helpful. Um, and there was a video, correct, that you get when you first sign up? Am yeah, I right about right. that? Okay. And it was about maybe yeah. making a little postcard or something or a little tiny, a little tiny quilt. A little tiny quilt. A tiny yeah. quilt. Exactly. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, that was great. So I, I just think it, it's a good I, way to entice people to sign up because they're going to get this little secret tutorial. Yeah. You know, and in my mind, I, I really consider it a gift, you know, like, I, I am thankful when people want to come along with me on this part of the journey and follow along. And so here's a little something I can offer back, you know, a little tiny quilt tutorial. And it's, it's a simple video, you know, it's probably about a half hour. So and me just in real time sitting there sewing a tiny quilt by hand, but it gives you a taste of who I am as a person. You know, um, people say they, they like listening to me talk about sewing that when I'm sewing, it's very calming. And um, more than once, somebody's called me the Bob Ross of sewing. I'll take that. Um, oh, I love so it. <laughs> it gives you, yeah, it gives you a good taste of, of who I am. And I think it just makes for a nice introduction to, to what, I, what I'm about. Yeah, it's a nice enticement, too, in that it's not a discount on something. Um, you know, like we were talking about earlier, it's not stuff or a discount on stuff. It's truly um, you sharing knowledge and also probably like your just overall approach to creativity through that knowledge. And so I think that's an interesting way to create a lead magnet where you're not offering a discount. Um, because I know that's a challenge sometimes for people. So I think that's really a good um, tip for sure. And I also love, um, and so this is something I've noticed about your quilting posts. Um, you often, maybe always, I'm not sure, take a photo of you, like a portrait of you with the finished and I wondered mm-hmm. if you could talk about the reasoning behind that and, and why you do that. Yeah, thank you for, for noticing that. Um, the first time I ever did that was um, 2020, 2019, 2020. And it was when I finished a particular quilt top that I had made out of naturally dyed fabric from all these acorns I had forged. And so there was this entire story of how the previous fall I had gathered these acorns from various places around Brooklyn. And then I'd held onto those acorns and then I made the dye and then I dyed the fabric and then I sewed the quilt top. Like it was just this long elaborate, it took me months to do this whole thing. Right. Um, And so when I got to the end of it, it just felt like something needed to be celebrated more than just like the quilt being done. Like I had done a lot of work here and I wanted to be, with that quilt. And so I sat myself down in front and took that picture. And ever since then, I've tried to do that with every quilt that I've I've finished and posted because there's so many people out there doing such good work that sometimes it can, you know, the quilts kind of run together. Yeah, especially on Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. Especially on Instagram. 
but quilts are an extension of, of who we are as people. Any creative work is an extension of who we are as people. And so I like to think about it like, I don't know. That like in, in a lot of ways, I see myself in the same light that I see my quilts. And we'll get to this when we talk about memory quilts and burial quilts. But I, I, I view quilts as a container for stories. Almost all of my quilts have stories that go along with them. And in a similar way, I view myself as a container for stories. And so it just makes a lot of sense to me to have both containers in the same picture. And what kind of impact do you think those photos have? I mean, how, what kind of reaction have you gotten when you do post them versus just posting, you know, a photo of the artwork itself? Well, it's humanizing. Yeah. You know, it goes back to my core philosophy of me as a person first and then work second. Um, so people, it, it makes concrete that connection between me as a person and the work that I make. Um, it gets a, a really warm response, I think, for a variety of reasons. One, people are happy for me. Two, people think the quilt's pretty. Three, I think what it also does is it automatically, in some ways, just gives a context for the quilt. Like, people see me in the picture, so they can imagine how big it is, scale, color, all these kinds of things. Which, if you just have a quilt hang on a wall, sometimes that's, that's abstracted. Which sometimes is what you want to go for in a picture. But... That's not what I want when it's time for um, the picture of a quilt with the artist, you know? Right. Yeah. And I know you mentioned dyeing with acorns. I know you're into um, making natural dyes and just generally into fermentation. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, do you use a lot of natural dyes in your quilts or is it kind of a sometimes thing? Well, I have a, an abiding interest in it, but I'll be honest with you, I haven't done it in several months. And the reason for that is, is I live in a one bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, New York, with a very sweet person who I love dearly, and he can't stand the smell of things boiling on the stove. Okay, you know, yeah. Sometimes natural dyes can be kind of stinky. Sure. You know, boiling barks and things like that. There's, there's an aroma. It does not bother me, but it bothers him. So out of respect, I've put uh, natural dyes on the back burner, so to speak. And um, I will pick that up at a future point in time. And where are you fitting this long arm machine that you got with the Kickstarter money in your little apartment in Brooklyn? <laughs> Abby, I wish you could see it because it's uh, in the bedroom and it occupies our bedroom is 11 feet wide and the long arm is 10 and a half feet long. Okay. So it just occupies that entire wall. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Because a lot of times people you know, struggle for space. And I imagine in a Brooklyn apartment, that's especially true. So um, interesting. Okay. And, and you sew in, in the Eden kitchen, is that right? That's correct. That's why we got this apartment because it had a little Eden kitchen area. It's about six feet by eight feet. And my partner looks at it and says, well, that'd be a good little spot for sewing. I think so too. Let's make that work. It's tight, but it's doable. Right. Which is great. Cause I also think sometimes you feel like, oh, I can't, pursue this as a, you know, a real job or even as a serious hobby without like some sort of, you know, really fancy studio space or dedicated bedroom or basement or something like that. But you have managed to make it work in such wonderful ways in a very small space, um, you know, which reminds me of like Deb from Smitten Kitchen or something like that, you know, like these mm -hmm. folks mm -hmm. who are able to really make it work in New York City. So, um, so that's inspiring, too. And I know that um, you really enjoy creating um, special sort of quilts that honor people through memory quilts or burial quilts. And I did read somewhere that you've actually even created your own burial quilt, which I thought was really, yeah. really interesting and unusual. So talk a little bit about, you know, that process, what draws you to it and what drew you to making one for yourself? Yeah. Oh, I mean, this is, this is the heart of the work for me right now. Um, I, I have long believed that working with repurposed materials, especially if we're talking about clothes people lived in, have been changed by the fact that they were once inhabited, right? We can see that in the discolorations that can happen. We can see that in the pit stains. We can see that in the frayed bits and the missing buttons. I mean, we leave evidence of our existence all over our clothes. And that means something. That has a physical, tangible effect on these garments and on 
the world at large. And so I love working with people to make memory quilts because a lot of times someone's passed away and we have more clothes now than we've ever had before. Our closets are bursting at the seams and we have special associations of our loved ones wearing certain things and we just can't give them away like that. And I think especially in the context of the pandemic, when, especially in the early months, when so many of our rites and rituals were were put on pause. We weren't having funerals. We weren't having burials like like we've done, you know, for generations. Um, so I think people were looking for an, another way to remember a life and to create something that held space for a life, even though the person was physically gone. And so I really started doing a lot of work with memory quilts in the last couple of years around that. And burial quilts started around the same time. But what I enjoy the most about that is... It, it feels to me, and I don't want to use too Christian-centric term here because I'm not, I don't necessarily consider myself of that faith, but it does feel like ministry. It feels like I'm doing something that affects real positive change for people. And that means something to me. Um, it's nice to make pretty quilts. I've made lots of nice quilts. They're beautiful. They look good on people's beds. I'm happy. But it feels like memory quilts and burial quilts also do something else and that makes me even happier i feel that when i'm talking with clients the very first step you know usually people reach out to me via email or via instagram i'm like great let's set up a phone call right and we chat on the phone and the first things i'm asking them are you know tell me a little bit about this person when whatever they want to tell me right they can some people tell me a little bit some people tell me a lot and i'm just there to listen Sometimes people will share photos of their loved ones with me, which I really appreciate. It's nice to have a, a face to go along with the story. And so then what I do is I take all of these stories they're giving me and I just kind of sit with them and then I put them into a quilt. And I think that patchwork offers such a great analogy that we can wrap our brains around when we're trying to process grief because what we're doing as quilters when we work with repurposed materials is we are taking the best bits of the garments they are still usable and we're scrapping a lot of the odd bits, you know, or we're scrapping the stuff that we can't use. And I think when we're processing the loss of a loved one, what tends to happen is we are remembering the good times and the, the sweet memories and we are letting some other things kind of slide away, hopefully, you know, so a lot of the, 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 the less pleasant memories slide away. You know, I recently went to um, a memorial for an uncle of mine who passed away and after the memorial, we had a big meal and, you know, open mic time for people to get up and tell stories. And for two hours, story after story, person after person, nobody got up and said what a jerk this guy was when he was alive, right? Everybody said something positive. And I feel like patchwork is the textile version of that, right? We're focusing on the good of a person and we're putting all of those stories into one place that then can become a container for those stories. And I... I just have to believe that when I give that quilt to the families that I've been working with, that when they feel, when they're having those moments of loneliness, they can wrap up in that quilt and feel something of the presence of their loved one. And that's what, at the end of the day, just means so much to me. And then what is a burial quilt? How is that different from a memory quilt? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of overlap there, but a burial quilt is, in my mind at least, designed to be used in lieu of a coffin or a casket. It can be used with one, of course, but I'm, I'm envisioning it in lieu of the idea there being, I remember hearing, I mean, this was a decade. I was in college. I was old enough to know better. And there was a story on the radio about a woman who passes away and it was her last wishes that her friends take the quilt off her bed, wrap her body up, put her in the back of a truck and drive out in the woods and bury her. And I remember thinking, one, you mean I don't have to be put in a casket? Like I got choices and two, like that's, that just seems to make so much sense to me, right? This just seems like a beautiful option. And so I, I have been working really hard in the last several months to, to talk to as many people as I can about burial quotes, because it's not something that we really have on our cultural radar at the moment. Right. People have long enshrouded bodies and simple un, undyed linen. You know, that's a long tradition in the Judaic faith, it's a long tradition in the, the Muslim faith. 
we have we we haven't really done a lot of work with with uh, quilts and burials, but I believe there's room for it, and here's why. Because when I'm thinking of memory quilts, or when I'm thinking of burial quilts, excuse me, I am working with people, designing it so that this quilt can be used while they're alive, for as long as they're alive, and hopefully that's many, many years. And they can wrap up in it, they can keep warm, they can put it over their bed, and they can infuse their life energy into that quilt. Okay. And then when the time comes, the body is then wrapped up in the quilt, which is made of all natural materials, which is important. Because then when we put the body into the ground, there is very little barrier for all of these borrowed elements that make up our body, all these organic elements that make up our body, to return back to the earth that has sustained us for our lifetimes. So I feel that it dovetails naturally with the idea of natural burial, which is the way we've done things for millennia. And just recently it's changed in the last few decades. Yeah, I didn't realize when I read about burial quilts that they were something that you used for years while you were alive. And um, that really does change the sort of meaning of them. Um, so that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing about, you know, your philosophy on um, a burial quilt. I think that's something for, for us all to kind of think think about. So um, that's, yeah, that's really wonderful. And um uh, sort of just Abby, like, can I tell you a little bit about my burial quilt? Yeah, please do. I like I like talking about old jackpot. Okay, so there's this quilt I made a couple years ago, and when I finished it, I looked at that and I thought, that is the zackiest quilt you've ever made. That is that is it. That is beautiful. I mean, there's just something about the colors and the movement of the shapes and just everything that just felt very much me and fabric. And so I said, I got to hold on to this one. And it became my burial quilt. I didn't make it with that intention, but it just became that. And the, in the composition, you'll see that it's improv You know, it's a mix of things. But it's a bunch of red sevens kind of floating throughout. And so I call it jackpot. And I, I keep jackpot folded up. I, I'm looking at jackpot right now. Keep it folded up. And I see this burial quilt every morning when I wake up. Wow. And... It does something in a very soft way, right? This is not a major revelation I'm having every morning, but I see it when I wake up and it offers me a certain kind of foundation to start my day, to just keep in the front of my mind that one of these days, there's not going to be any more, any more days. That that's going to be it. And so at a time of life when there is so much unknown, I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know where it's going to happen. I don't know what's going to be going on in the world when it happens, but I do know that my body, God willing, will be wrapped up in this jackpot quilt and it will be soft and it will be colorful and it'll be just the way I want it. Yeah. And so that brings me a lot of peace of mind. And so I encourage anybody who's interested in making their own burial quilt to think about it because it really does, it's an interaction with your own mortality. Right. None of us. That's what I was going to say. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I find myself, this is crazy, but I'll tell you, Abby, that I find myself talking to this quilt from time to time and telling <laughs> this quilt stories and things. So it's become to operate for me on a personal level. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, a, a, a partner with me till the end, you know, something that will carry me through. It gives me a friendly way, uh, a soft way, um, a not stressful way to kind of think of my own mortality. Right. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. That's great. What a great message. And speaking of special quilts, so we have Jackpot as a special, very yeah. special quilt, perhaps the most mm -hmm. special of all. But um, you also made the back of a quilt, which was basically patched work or pe uh, sewn over the back of an existing quilt that was mm -hmm. at worn as an item of clothing at the Met Gala, which happened just maybe a month or two ago. So um, tell me how you came to get this very exciting commission. <laughs> so I would like to correct the record. I did not make the back of the Met Gala quilt. I like to say I made the red side. The red the side, <laughs> exactly. It's just that when it was yeah. worn, the red side was inside. Of course, of course. No, it's, it's just a little, uh, it's just a little something I like to rib people about. Because, <laughs> you know, we do think of quilts as having a front and a back, but 
the red part is my favorite part. So why, why consign that <laughs> to the backside? Um, yeah, so here's how it came about. Uh, I, I mean, I still laugh just thinking about it. So it was just a random message on Instagram from somebody with a private account. And so I didn't know what they're about. I didn't recognize the name. I couldn't tell anything about them. And they're like, hey, can you make this quilt? And they sent me this picture of that vintage quilt. And it was kind of dark and poorly lit. And, you know, I, I get messages like that from time to time. And so I just wrote back saying, oh, I really appreciate you reaching out, but my project calendar is really full right now. Right. I can recommend somebody. If you'd like. I love that you turned it down. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I just couldn't. I just, you know, a lot going on. And so I, I said, I can recommend somebody if you want. And they wrote back saying, that would be great because it's for the Met. And I said, hold up. This is a whole other thing than I thought it was. I was like, talk to me. And so the, the story was that the designer, Eli Russell Annette, had found this vintage quilt at a thrift store out in L.A. And the original idea was to recreate the entire quilt. Oh. But as the, the, yeah, as the deadline loomed closer, uh, we realized we didn't have enough time to do that. And so then the idea was to keep the original quilt and I'll make the red side. And I'm really glad we did that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, vintage quilts just have a magic all their own. I don't got to tell you all this. Like they just, they, they, they've they lived a life already. You know, the fabrics are faded in certain ways and especially the batting in this one was smushed in certain ways and it was just soft and lovely. And so there was no way I could reproduce that magic with new fabric, no matter how many times they stonewashed the material or whatever they did. And so we kept the vintage top. I made the red side what was really another reason why I was glad that we went that direction was because then I had a lot of creative latitude on the back. Um, I just got the direction of, we want lots of layers and we we want chaos. I'm like, I got you. They gave me a lot of fabrics, a lot of red fabrics. And I just went to town and I would send them kind of process shots of composition. And they're like, more layers, more crazy. And I'm like, I got you. And so I'd add some more and add some more. And it was, it was just, it was me doing my, my thing. I was executing someone else's vision, but in a way that also felt creatively satisfying for me. Um, and so once we got the, the red side done, I applied it to the back of the original vintage quilt and <laughs> they came by, let's see, Saturday morning, the Met Gala was on a Monday night, Saturday morning, uh, Eli and his, and his team, Rennie and Luke, wet through the apartment. They pulled up in a taxi cab. They were here for maybe nine minutes. And it was a lot of fun. Like it was, we took a lot of pictures, all smiles, telling stories. I mean, it, it was great, but they were very busy. You know, so uh, I got them in a cab and got them back into the city. And it was just neat to, to meet them. And then come the night of the Met Gala. One, it was a hot and sultry evening here in New York City. So I'm like, oh God. This quilt that weighs probably 25 pounds is not going to be comfortable. I was like, Rocky might not even wear it, you know? And we're sitting there glued to the live cast of the Met Gala. And we're watching for like three hours. And then the hosts get on and like, well, been fun tonight, folks. Thanks for joining us. Oh, folks. gosh. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, what? I did all that work. What happened? Where's Rocky? Where's Rihanna? And my partner and I, we, we, we hop on Twitter and hop on Instagram. We're like, where are they? What's going on? He's following Rihanna. I'm following Rocky. We're just trying to see what is happening. And we get little, you know, we see, we find tweets of like, oh, they just left the Carlisle Hotel. Oh, they're going up whatever avenue. Uh, you know, and then we see them pull up. We're like, okay, this happened. This happened. And then we see them step out and Rihanna's looking cute in her all black and her little winter cap and all that. And then Rocky's all wrapped up in his, his quilt. And he gets to the top of the stairs, he pauses for a moment, and then he just spreads his arms out, opening the quilt, revealing the red side, and dropping the quilt red side up. Nice. And I don't know if this was intentional, but the way it read to me, and I think the way it read to a lot of people, is that he just created his own little patch of red carpet. Because the funny thing is, the Met Gala was all white, right? Yeah. So you have this very stark image of a white floor with a big red square on it. And Rocky's just standing there, like, looking cute, doing his thing. And it just felt so smart in that moment. And in retrospect, it was also one of the 
designs that was the most appropriate to the event. Um, the theme was American legacy. And so I had expected naively, turns out, that people would use a bunch of American designers that touched on American themes. And that was rarely the case. There's only a handful of folks that seemed to, to, take, to, to listen to the brief. But Anna Wintour herself, before the runway, said American fashion is a patchwork. And I was like, hot dog. She's going to be so happy when she sees Rocky then. And when it comes to what I think makes that quilt work so well in that moment, is if we're thinking about American legacy, there's a lot of directions we can take that. But a quilt is a very accessible item, is a very democratic, literally, uh, item. We can all associate a quilt with with something in our lives, something in our homes. And so it just felt very, hmm, hmm. There, there was something in it for everybody. It wasn't just for Rocky and it wasn't just for Rihanna. It wasn't just for Eli Russell and that, you know? Everybody could see a, a part of themselves or a quilt that they've wrapped up in in that quilt. I think that was something really special. Yeah, it really was. Um, and I love that the woman, the woman's, I think it was her granddaughter who who made the other side. Um, and it ended up in a thrift store where it was bought by this designer, um, recognized it and had the picture of it in her grandmother's house. So definitely like that history of America and Americana, um, certainly reflected in that garment. So, so many layers and such an interesting experience. And I'm really glad that you got to be such an integral part of it. Um, we loved watching it from home. So it was super cool. Yeah, it was super cool. And um, I want to make sure we get to your recommendations. So um, you have a, a couple of really good ones. Um, so if you don't mind, we'll mm -hmm. go there now. Um, you wanted to talk a little bit about sauerkraut, which I got to tell you, I've done over 200 episodes of this show and nobody has actually recommended sauerkraut in the past. Yes. Oh, I'm so happy. Here's why. Sauerkraut has a life lesson for us all. And that is to make basic sauerkraut. You just need a few ingredients. You need some cabbage. You need some salt and you need some water. Those three together <laughs> taste kind of gross. But you add in the magic fourth ingredient of time. You let that sauerkraut sit for a month, six weeks, two months, whatever. And then something happens inside of that vessel that the cabbage that comes out of it does not taste like the cabbage that went into it and so it gives me a frame of kind of thinking about life and thinking about time as a magic ingredient there's a lot of overlays there with quilting and there's a lot of overlays with you know business pursuits as well that you can take the elements be they fabric and batting or a new email newsletter and a website you can take the independent elements, but that's not enough. What you also need is just to let time do its thing. You can't rush it. And then what happens over time will be a, a natural evolution that will be totally different and elevated from what you'd initially started out with. And you also wanted to recommend riding downhill on your bicycle. Yeah. I mean, just let go. Just do it. Let that wind blow through your hair if you got it. Just enjoy it. Don't work so hard. That's these, it. These are, these are good life lessons, Zach. <laughs> and finally, your last recommendation, and I think is po possibly one of the best too, is making crafty schemes to change the world. Listen, I am a duplicitous, crafty crafter. Let me tell you, I am constantly out there trying to think of new ways to make this place a little more tolerable for people and for, for non-people as well. Um, yeah, not a day goes by, I'll try to make something a little bit better. And so whether that's the Quilty Nook and that community I'm building there, or it's the memory quilt I'm making for somebody, or it's just like helping somebody get their groceries in their car, whatever. Like anywhere I see a chance to help, I try to jump in and not shy back. And so there's a lot of ways that we have within our control and within our power to make this the, the world we want it to be. And I think that's especially important to remember when it feels like so much is out of our control. And we don't need to delineate what feels like it's outside of our control because the list is long. But let's focus on what we can do and the positive change we can bring. 
Zach, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoy talking to you. Likewise, Abby. You ever want to chat again, you know where to find me. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by AcademyForVirtualTeaching.com. The world has changed in the past year. So many people have now embraced Zoom as a valuable way to stay connected with each other and are now comfortably using online courses to develop their creative skills. At the Academy for VirtualTeaching.com, you'll find a vibrant community of virtual teachers hosting practice teaching sessions, monthly open topic roundtables, guest seminars, professional development courses, and other activities designed to help you be a more proficient, profitable, and professional online teacher. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.